I was wrong to tell you that this is a story about the failures of love. No, it is about real love, true love, imperfect, wretched, weak love. No fairy tales, no poetry. It is about the negotiations we undertake with ourselves in the name of love. Every day we struggle to decide what to give it away and what to keep, but every day we make that calculation and live with the results. This then is the true lesson. There is nothing romantic about love. Only the most naive believe it will save them. Only the hardiest of us will survive it. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us, you can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, June 17th, 2019 and today for 42 Minutes we are traveling into the future to the year 2077 to meet the last romantic, Fiona Skinner, and will do so with the help of her author, Tara Conklin, responsible most recently for the 2019 book, The Last Romantics. When the renowned poet Fiona Skinner is asked about the inspiration behind her iconic work, The Love Poem, she tells her audience a story about her family and a betrayal that reverberates through time. It begins in a big yellow house with a funeral, an iron poker, and a brief variation forever known as The Pause. A sweeping yet intimate epic about one American family, The Last Romantics, is an unforgettable exploration of the ties that bind us together, the responsibilities we embrace, and the duties we resent, and how we can lose, and sometimes rescue, the ones we love. A novel that pierces the heart and lingers in the mind, and it's also a beautiful meditation on the power of stories, how they navigate through difficult times, help us to understand the past, and point the way toward our future. Tara Conklin is a writer and former lawyer whose first novel, The House Girl, was a New York Times bestseller, number one indie pick, target book plug pick, and has been translated into eight languages. Her second novel, The Last Romantics, was published in February of 2019 by William Morrow to wide acclaim. An instant New York Times bestseller, The Last Romantics was selected as the inaugural book for the Today Show Book Club. Before turning to fiction, Tara worked for an international human rights organization and at corporate law firms in London and New York. She now lives in Seattle where she writes, teaches, and works with private clients on manuscript development. She appeared, she appeared this past March at the Treefort Music Fest as part of Storyfort and participated in multiple panels. More information about her work can be found at her website, taraconklin.com, to which we'll link. It really is an honor to be hosting her today. How are you doing, Tara? Hi, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. And it's it's interesting. I, I did not realize what a high-profile author you were. <laughs> I just I had no <laughs> idea. I? Yes, I think oh you're high-profile, yes. <laughs> but let's start with... Thanks. You bet. <laughs> uh, let's start with Treefort, and that's probably why I was just lulled into this this sleepy little town has this great festival. What did you think of Treefort? Yeah. Oh my God, I loved Treefort. It was so fun. You know, the um, you know writers get invited to all these these different conferences and festivals, and 
and um, I don't want to name any names, but sometimes it can be a little dry and boring (laughs) (laughs) and not much fun uh, to participate in. But this one was just so great. I mean, the other writers who were there were amazing. And, um, and of course, because it's also a music festival, it was just this really great combination of artists and, and different genres. And yeah, I had a blast. Well, how many days did you come to town for? Um, I was there for, I think I was there for three days. Um, and the fact that I can't remember exactly how long probably speaks <laughs> to the amount of fun that I had. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I was there for three days. And then are you friendly with some of the people involved or was it just kind of a flukish thing that you yeah. got involved well, with this? Yeah, I um, I am I have met uh, Jamie Ford and Jonathan Evison before because they are both members of a group called Seattle Seven Writers, which I am a, ma- a member of as well. That is has kind of expanded to include writers throughout the Pacific Northwest, not just Seattle. And it's definitely a lot more than seven now. And so I had actually had I met Johnny. I think I may have just like seen him at parties and things like that. Um, but they were both there. So I, so, you know, I can't even remember how exactly I got invited. Christian Wynn knew Johnny and, or knows Johnny and Jamie. And it was just kind of a, a big, uh, a big, you know, the stars were aligned and, and it happened. And also I was on book tour then. So I, my name was probably being thrown about by my publicist to every festival, uh, going on at the time. Um, and so, so I think it originally came, my publicist was involved with organizing it. But so then did, did I get that right? Did your, your book come out in February, this 2019? Mm-hmm. And so it came out in February. Yeah. Yeah. So this would have been just right after it, it launched basically. Yeah. Yeah. I was still, I was traveling pretty intensively at that point. And yeah. And story four, it was kind of, one of the one of the last big trips, one of the last big festivals that, that I that I did for the book, um, and I think the most fun. <laughs> <laughs> I went out with a bang. <laughs> was, was there any any music that you? Uh, I mean, so that's what's fun about Treefort is that you just it's it really is a festival of discovery, and you find things that you wouldn't necessarily find on your own because it's just a high density of really quality things brought together yeah yeah but did did you run into any music that was worth a dang you know I did I mean I was sort of brought along to a number of shows um by Johnny and Jamie and um and then there are also two writers who do a podcast they do the the podcast for um the grotto in San Francisco called I think it's called Grotto Pod um Bridget Quinn and Larry Rosen and I met them like I did their podcast the first afternoon that I was in Boise and then I hung out with them because they had been there several years prior as well so they kind of showed me the ropes and so I was kind of brought along to different shows but I I have to admit I can't remember the names of the bands there were so many of them I mean there were so many stages and I really was unprepared for the scope of the festival 
And then I went down, you know, I do a lot of yoga. I went down to the yoga fort place, which was, I mean, and I could have spent the entire weekend just going to events, you know, yoga events or music events or literary events. I mean, there was just so much happening, which was, which was really, really great. Yeah. Uh, and I always, I always am tickled by how good the story for events are. And it seemed like this year there was, there was a lot of events. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There really were. And it's always really fun for writers to connect with other writers at these events. And because of the the length of time that the festival took place and the number of panels that they would schedule everybody on, I mean, it, it was really a great um, kind of networking thing for writers, but not, I mean, networking, not in a not in like the callous, shallow <laughs> business uh, business way, but more of just, you know, really getting to talk and connect with other writers from different parts of the country, which, which you know, is hard to do because we're all introverts and we all spend our time sitting alone in dark rooms, staring at a little screen. Um, <laughs> so, so it really was, it was really great from just from my personal uh, personal perspective. Well, yeah, let's talk about sitting in the in the dark room, staring at your screen. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I I think you you stated that when you were drafting the last romantics, you wrote that three times. I'm just really mm -hmm. curious about like uh, <laughs> lay people might not understand the difference between like the difference between like what drafting is or, and then when you have something that you're polishing or refining and shaping. Yeah. So you, what yeah. does your practice look like? Um, well, for that book, and I'm not saying that this will be my practice in the future. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I hope it isn't because otherwise I'm going to go a long time between paychecks. But um, my, my <laughs> practice, what happened with that book was that, I had this very clear idea in my head of what I wanted and I sold, uh, you know, for, for the first book, when you sell your first novel, you have to sell the whole product. You have to have the whole thing finished before a publisher will talk to you unless, you know, unless you're famous already or in some other way or, but for the most part, it's not like you can just say, Oh, I've got this really great idea and here's the first chapter and this is what I'm going to do. Um, which is what you can do with nonfiction book proposals, but for fiction, you need the whole, you need the whole shebang um, for the first book. But for the second book, they're like, Oh yeah, you know how to write a novel. You, yeah, we've seen what you can do. Like you sold some books. What are you working on? And so that for me was a totally new experience that I sold my second book just based on an idea and a couple chapters and an outline, very rough outline. Um, and so I had this kind of idea going into the book um, of what I wanted to, of what I wanted it to look like. And I sold that idea and I spent about a year, year and a half writing that book and editing it and getting it polished to a point where I was like, okay, this is, this is pretty much what I wanted to do. And I handed it into my editor and she said, Tara, this is not a novel. <laughs> she was like, this is, well, she said, this is a, this is a great first draft was what she said. And I was like, well, this is, this is what I wanted to do. 
And she said, you know, this is, this is not a novel. This is which, and she, she was 100% correct. And it was more of, um, it was character studies. It was scenes. It was sort of, it was, it was like a loose collection of short stories, but, um, but it really wasn't cohesive. And I, uh, and I think because I had, because it was almost like the concept became more important than the substance, which of course doesn't work. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can dream the most amazing building and have this picture of it in your head, but if it doesn't stand up and the doors don't open and close and, you know, nobody wants to live in it, then what's the point? It's not working. So that was kind of, that was kind of, what happened with that first version. Um, but she said, I love the characters. And, um, and so I went back and I, I started writing more, um, about these characters and I wrote more and more and more and more, just kind of trying to figure out, I'm definitely a discover the story kind of person like some people sort of think about the story they outline they have everything kind of planned they know what's going to happen in chapter one they know what's going to happen in chapter two and then when they sit down to write they have like this game plan of of what's going to happen I am total opposite I for me the joy of writing is discovering the story and and just being surprised by what happens with these characters so so the second draft, <laughs> which again, I wrote and submitted as a finished novel, um, was, was much longer and was very, um, it was multi-generational. It focused on some characters that were since cut completely. It was sprawling in every sense of the word. And the book now is fairly sprawling, but this was even broader. And it was really, really, really long. And I handed it in. And I honestly, at that, with that version, I kind of knew that she, that it was, it wasn't what she was looking for. And it wasn't, it wasn't a book that I would want to read, <laughs> you know, it, but I had worked on it for so long at that point. That I was just like, okay, let's just see if Kate, my editor can like, give me like, help me out here. And, um, and she, you know, we talked about it afterwards and, and she said, uh, you know, Tara, you're getting there. <laughs> she was like, you're getting there. And so then I went back and I started all over again. Um, and I wrote, you know, I opened a new document and I wrote chapter one at the top. And um, I, at that point in time, I knew who these characters were. I had kind of been, you know, three, three and a half years discovering them. And I knew the story that I wanted to tell. And it was more, it, for me, it was really discovering those characters. Um, and that's what that whole, the whole, you know, first and second draft process was about. And then once I had that, I, the, the drafting was, was pretty, I wouldn't say easy, but it was, I definitely knew that I, that I was working finally on the book. Do you think initially it was the idea of the thing or the characters themselves that called you and held you in their thrall for the the three years? Um, it was both. I mean, it started with a character. It started with Joe and this idea of 
kind of this this triangle of this very charming but very flawed man and uh, his his love, his girlfriend, and his sisters, and kind of the push and pull of these love relationships. Um, and also, I mean, you read, you know, you read the end, uh, the last, some of the last page of the book, you know, that really was, that encapsulates the initial concept that I wanted to look at. Um, and the themes, you know, that, that I hope, um, the book conveys and, and these characters kind of, it's, it's what they, it's what they're thinking about and what the ultimate message of, of their experiences. I mean, I, you know, I think, um, you know, we're brought up with, or uh, I think women in particular are brought up with this idea of like, you know, women of my generation, I'm going to even narrow it down more. I think women, these the girls these days have, have more than Disney princesses to look up to, but Certainly in my generation, it was like, you know, the, I, the Disney princess ideal and like the, the prince is going to come in and save you. And, um, and this very, this very idealized view of, of love. And I don't, and I don't mean just romantic love. I mean, you know, any kind of love relationship, um, you know, parent, child and, um, and, and, siblings too. And I think we have this kind of soft, hazy association with that word love. Um, but when it comes right down to it, you know, love relationships are the most difficult and the most frustrating and the most challenging of our lives. Um, and there, you know, there's, there's a lot more than puppy dogs and, and roses. <laughs> that go into them and and you know they're I mean not to sound too negative but at the end of the day you know love doesn't save you really or it's you know it's it's much more complicated than than all of the kind of five cent homilies we grew up hearing and being sung to in pop songs did you do any unpacking? So the last romantic is a pretty common phrase. And if you Google it, you bump into a number of people and even a film from 2007. Did, did, you, look, mm -hmm. did you look at any of that or just, I mean, because it, it definitely comes out of, I really like uh, where the title comes into play in the story and how it, it, it's, uh, it's um, Fiona's practice uh, say, mm -hmm. um, both it's, it's interesting because it's both an interior and an external and, and it really is appealing to me and probably my listeners. We like, uh, synchronicity, just coincidences and, and following, mm -hmm. letting the universe lead you where it might. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, you mean the meaning of the No, of the more title? like your relationship to synchronicity and, and the meaning of the title, too. Oh. Of just, or whether or not, you know, like, so I think uh, Teddy Roosevelt was called The Last Romantic and Vladimir Horowitz was called The Last Romantic and Queen, <laughs> Queen Marie of Romania was The Last Romantic. Did you look at any um, of that stuff? 
You know, I think you looked up more than I did, to be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, I did I did Google it early on. I mean, the, the title actually came from a Yates poem oh. um, called, uh, gosh, what is it called? It's um, Bally. It's, 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 anyhow, he uses the term the last romantics to talk about this period of time when he was writing and creating in this estate, this like country estate. And he was with all of these other poets and, and they were having this extremely, you know, just wildly creative period. And then it ended. And so he, and this poem is kind of about, you know, the, the, like the lost ideal and the lost, um, uh, like the lost a period of, of, naivete and and romanticism and um and that to me when I read that because I was reading a lot of poetry and taking poetry classes to as I was researching because Fiona my protagonist is a is a famous poet and that when I read this poem that phrase just really stuck with me and it seemed to have so many different layered meanings that would apply to the story. I mean, you know, for the pause, uh, you know, that was a period of time that when, uh, for people who haven't read the book, that it opens with, uh, with their, the siblings, the four siblings childhood and they, um, their father dies in the opening page of the book and their mother goes into a pretty serious depression and they are left to sort of fend for themselves and this period of about three years is really the basis for their relationships. And they, they came to know and love and rely on one another in a very, you know, in a really fundamental way during that period. And for Fiona, my narrator, you know, that, that period of time, which the kids then later in life call the pause, the pause was for her absolutely amazing and wonderful and she really you know and and the kind of that that togetherness that she felt with her siblings was the inspiration for so much of her later work as a poet and so when that when they age and and those relationships get more complicated and fray you know she is looking back to that to that time um so that's one that's not i and that's not it's not necessarily explicit in the novel that that is uh, is one of the kind of the ways that I was looking at the title. But and there was and also at one point Noni says when when she learns that one of her daughters has gotten married has eloped very young, and the mother says and I thought I would be the last and the last to make a decision like this for a man. And so it also goes to the idea of sort of the, the generation of women in the 1960s and 1970s who fought all these feminist battles and they thought their daughters would be home free. You know, my mother was a real feminist in the 1960s and 70s. And, and I think a lot of the challenges that my generation has faced you know, I think our mothers are surprised that we're still dealing with these issues and, um, and having to make the kind of choices between, you know, profession and family and not making, you know, inequality in the workplace. And 
so anyhow, that was another that was another layer of the the meaning of that of that title. I don't know if that really gets at your synchronicity point. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you made me think about uh, about the characters themselves and and separating yeah. the characters. So the characters stand on their own apart from the author. And I guess it wasn't a thought that I had like really thought too much for whatever reason. I don't know that I was, I was crazy about Renee, but I understood why. Oh yeah. I understood. Well, th with all the characters, there's enough underpinning to understand why they behave the way they do. And so they were, uh -huh. There were human, and so I could feel empathy. But there was something about Renee that just I I I don't know. And I I thought it was really interesting because it's like, and then I started to wonder whether or not, you know, it's like <laughs> it it was just an interesting thought experiment to think about a character as separate mm -hmm. from the author themselves. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they are all very much their own people. So those women <laughs> um, you know I am one of three sisters I'm the oldest of three sisters and um and so when I was writing this book you know I had to assure my own sisters many many times <laughs> that I was not using them as inspiration <laughs> for any of these characters they are not my sisters um something but, but you know oh sorry go ahead oh I was gonna something else that I really uh, appreciated was how evocative certain scenes were. They were really uh, immediate. So like uh, the mm -hmm. pond, you I really felt like it was at the pond with Fiona and Joe. And then mm -hmm. also, you know, this scene with Renee running through the houses, mm -hmm. that was yeah. very uh, visceral. I wonder, you know, so were, I guess, were you more connected to those things or like how, how do you think... Um... What's the magic there, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> if you can tell me, uh, then we'll guarantee an next bestseller. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, it's, you know, the scene with Renee, I mean, I think that was, that scene I wrote almost in one draft. Like, I didn't tinker with that very much after I, I wrote it. Huh, um, yeah. yeah, and there are other scenes of that, went through numerous, 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 you know, drafts. I mean, you know, many, many, many different drafts. So, um, you know, it's, I don't know. There are definitely, I mean, I want to say that for each scene, I visualize it, obviously. And for me, each scene is as vivid as the next. Like, I can picture myself through that whole book, Um but I do think it's almost more of what it's more reflection of you as a reader, <clears throat> the scenes that you find the most evocative, hmm. you know, I mean, you're bringing your own perspective and your own experiences and maybe something in those scenes, you know, reverberated or reminded you of something that had happened in your life. And so therefore you, you were able to, to picture them um, more than others. That's, I don't know. What do you think of that? <laughs> That's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. That's really the beauty of, of writing, especially writing fiction, is that it really does become, once you publish that book, it is, it's a living, breathing thing out there. And every reader, 
reader brings something different to those pages and those characters. And, you know, I mean, read any book and their Amazon reviews or the <laughs> interviews and, you know, everybody has a different reaction. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I hate those one-star reviews and then yeah, good reads people, uh, you know, as much as the next writer, but it also, you know, that's what it, it means that the book is kind of doing what I want it to do, which is, provoke responses and engage people and whether someone is you know doesn't like it is engaged in a negative way and doesn't like it I mean you know you can't please everybody but at least there's there's something happening there you know there's a judgment that's being made there's a there's a conversation that's happening between the person and the book and I love that oh my god I just love it well that's kind of been one of my kicks lately is this there's something that literature does that seems unique and maybe theater, maybe, but somehow you're able to get inside the character's head. So you get to have both an interior and an exterior view all at the same time. And it just, mm -hmm. it really feels like a complete worldview. Uh, it's just really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to judge them. You know, you get to decide what you think of these people. And without sort of, you know, you can't, I mean, in, in life, you, the people that you know most intimately, who you know they're inside and they're outside, like, it's hard to kind of pass, you know, you can't, like, it's, it's, it's a much more complicated thing to have opinions about what they're doing and to, you know, to, to get angry at them or to disagree with what they're thinking. You know, it's just, it's, but, but in a book, it's like, you can do that. And I think you, as you do that, you kind of develop your own sense of morality and your own sense of how you want to be in the world, you know, because in a novel, you're presented with all these situations that you don't necessarily encounter in your everyday life. And you get to have those experiences alongside the character and decide, you know, if, if they did the right thing or decide if you would do something differently and, um, or if you relate to them, you know, and I just think that's so valuable, especially in this day and age when we're constantly being told what to think, you know, by media and politicians and to be able to have that independent you know, evaluation of, of, of a character's actions and thoughts. And I, I just think it's a very, very valuable thing. Yeah. I mean, I think Obama, I mean, that's one, one of the th reasons why he appreciated literature is that you get to be someone else and then you have a, mm -hmm. a different perspective that you wouldn't normally get in your everyday life. Yeah. But like, yeah. I I really enjoy like they say it's the golden age of TV. But it's just it's a different experience because you're not you're not participating in the character's life like you said. You yeah, know, it's my pond that I'm. It even though you wrote the pond, I'm bringing my pond into it also. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm sure your pond looks different than my pond, <laughs> <laughs> or than you know the reader down the street than their pond. Yeah, and. Um, you know, cause I, obviously I can't describe every single thing on the page. So I just pick out certain things that, you know, are the most important for me 
And then you fill in the rest. Every reader fills in the rest. Well, so it's almost summer and it seems like the New York Times just had the it they did this thing about it books it like the the summer mm -hmm. books. and so it's just curious because you never know how these things work but you know your book came out at the right time it could be the it book for the summer uh what do you, what do you think? oh my goodness <laughs> i think so i think so it's just it's so yeah. strange how these things work but um you know what is a it good is, summer book is. for you what do you enjoy reading in oh, the summer what is a good summer book for me you know i don't really distinguish between like I know people are like oh yeah it has to be a good beach read you know <laughs> my last my last beach vacation I brought Bleak House with me like <laughs> I don't <laughs> you know I I'm not I tend I tend to just read what I want to read whenever so yeah a good so yeah beach house Bleak House that's a great <laughs> that's my recommendation for summer reading <laughs> Go back to the big doorstopper classics. Uh, but I, let's see, what are, what are some books that I have recently, um, that I've recently been reading? I read a lot of advanced review copies these days. People send me books that aren't out yet to read. Uh, so that's, so that's, I won't name any of those because nobody can find them. Um, uh, oh, oh, really wonderful book um, by a uh, young writer named Itaf Rum, R-U-M is her last name. It's called A Woman Is No Man. And um, it's she's she's a wonderful writer. She's a Palestinian-American. And um, it's about uh, these three generations of Palestinian-American women and their experiences. And it's just, it's a really, really beautiful beautiful book also the overstory which is not exactly a you know out of left field recommendation i don't have you read the overstory well it's funny because this program does a book club and that is our our summer pick for our book club. oh yeah and i just started that is a, oh my goodness it's, it's pretty crazy it is like there are very few books that you read and then you literally are like, oh, my God, I look at the world completely differently. I mean, and that book had that effect on me. I was like, wow, I just am looking at the world differently now. And um, I mean, it's that is that's a pretty that is that's not a beach read. That's not your typical beach read either. <laughs> no. it's, a, it's a big, like weighty book, um, but really, really worth it. And just written, I mean, impeccably. It's just really, really beautifully written. Um, so those are, those are two. What else? I'm just looking at my bookshelf right now, actually. I mean, oh, Bowl Away by Elizabeth McCracken. Have you read that? That's really, that yeah. takes place in Massachusetts, which is my home state. So I, I had an immediate fondness for it, but it's, do you, do you read, have you read her short stories, Elizabeth McCracken? No. She's a great, her, she, um, she has this, uh, book of short stories come out about gosh it was probably about 10 years ago now that just blew me away um and it was one of those books that I kind of carried around with me you know mm -hmm. like and I have underlined and this is her first novel in in a while and it's very it's very funny and very kind of quirky and has a lot of off-the-wall characters and uh it's it's really it's really good bowl away it's about candle pin bowling 
what as you were talking about the woman is no man it made me think about your audience i wonder about just mm -hmm. readership in general and i know that uh so here in boise we have the log cabin which is kind of a, our literary uh arts thing and they sponsor a reading uh -huh. conversation and it seems like the audience really skews either old or female i wonder do you get that same impression that readers tend to be female or you know what is what yeah is, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean do guys every, read books <laughs> well you know i think they do um i think they but i mean it's women who buy books like the like i i, I don't know the statistic but the vast majority of books are bought by women um, and particularly fiction. I mean, I think the, you know, the stereotype is that the guys will buy, you know, the, the general MacArthur biography, you know, volume five and <laughs> their wives will buy the, the latest novel. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's a tricky kind of, which came, you know, it's a tricky kind of chicken and egg question because, also, so many novels that I think would appeal. I mean, they're they're not gender specific in who would enjoy the story, but they are marketed primarily to female audience. So, you know, you get a hazy, you know, photograph of someone walking down the beach on the cover, or you know, you get. I mean, you you know what I mean? Like yeah. I've seen books that that maybe you would actually enjoy it, but you would never be caught holding or. Maybe you would. I'm making assumptions, but but many men would maybe not want to buy a book with that as the cover, and they wouldn't even look at it because it immediately seems like a woman's book. And there's been a lot written about this, um, just how how skewed uh, marketing is, and how the serious books, you know, are have you know, written by men have like totally different covers and different fonts. And, um, and then uh, there's a, there's an essay by Meg Willitzer that's, I don't know, probably five or six years old at this point called the second shelf. And it's about how women's books are always placed below men's books and, um, and just how, uh, how prevalent the kind of gender, gender stereotyping in book book marketing is so but that being said so for this book you know the title is kind of you know because it has the word romantic in it it, it might be considered more female but I specifically wanted a cover that was not you know fuzzy traditionally feminine cover and I think they did a really good job. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't immediately cry out like this was like the latest romance book club. Read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, but, but, it, and then at the same time though, pretty much all of my events are, yeah, I'd say 75% women, sometimes 99% women, um, but, but definitely the majority are women in at most of, most of the events that I do. And I think that's across the board. Maybe Stephen King gets more men out or, 
I don't know, I'm to, like a thriller writer, um, yeah. Clive Cussler or somebody, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you spent you spent these these all these years with with this family. What what direction are you headed now? Are you short stories or are you working on something big? I'm working on another novel. It is um, definitely smaller in scope than than the last Romantics. Um, it's basically my sort of wish fulfillment reaction to the current political situation. So it's a, it's about a community. It's about a small town that. Um, let me see how I'm. St- you know, I'm I'm really. I, I don't even know how it all works out yet. So I, I could only describe it in the fairest of ways. But um, it's basically about a, a community that is faced with an issue and they ultimately, they do the right thing. <laughs> it's going to have a happy ending. I'm just going to tell you that now. Because, <laughs> you know, I can't listen to the news very often. I need to like, I need to, to give a happy ending to this story. Well, that's something that's really interesting about The Last Romantics is that in the background, there's there's this mystery of what's really going on in the world. And you, you leave mm-hmm. it open enough that, you know, readers can just speculate what the answer is. But it really feels like yeah. this, this is the summer when when it feels like the the check is finally coming due and it seems like a lot of the writing yeah. is just kind of bleak as far as where we're at i wonder do yeah you, do you feel like you were prophetic in that or <laughs> well i mean i think you know i i wanted um to have her narrating from the future i wanted to be able to have this kind of nostalgic tone to the book and this kind of reminiscent uh, aspect of it. But I also wanted to look at contemporary life and contemporary women in particular and contemporary relationships. And so, so, you know, so I had to put Fiona in the future. If I wanted those two things, the only way I could, and I tried various different ways of, and various different time frames to set it. Um, and then when I kind of, um, can't, you know, I just, I thought, my God, what if Fiona's talking to us from the future? You know, it, it seemed like I could have everything that I wanted narratively. Um, but, you know, thinking about the future, it's pretty hard to think about the future without thinking about environmental disaster. Um, and certainly a very different everyday world than the one we experience now and to be honest that was another layer of this title the last romantics i mean i feel like we are sort of the last generation that is going to be able to live in this idol of having the you know luxury of even entertaining the idea that climate change isn't you know happening in a dramatic dangerous way you know and there are people who are you know the leader of our country who entertains that idea. And I don't think that's going to be a possibility for our children and our children's children. Um, they're going to have to deal with the real shit. <laughs> well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it. With oh my us. goodness. Okay. It went pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've been listening to Tara Conklin on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. For more information about her work, check out her website, taraconklin.com, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help, help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and some people will choose again and again to destroy what it is they value most. The greatest lost track of all time. Liquid turpentine.